Welcome to the never-ending quest for clarity. This is Loving Liberty with Brian Hyde. Well, thank you so much for joining me for the second half of today's broadcast. It is Monday, the 4th of November. And I'm not going to lie, I have uh, I have some serious questions about what things are going to look like a year from today. Just because uh, I'm, I'm watching the... What's the word for it? I don't want to sound like I'm just casting, you know, you know, some kind of aspersions at people here. But the irrationality, the anger, and I mean on both sides. It's not just the people who hate Trump, but, uh, but even some of Trump's defenders. There, there is such a divide and people are just... I don't know. I've never seen a time in my life when I can recall where people have so openly hated one another. And I mean, people they've never met, people who've never in any way, shape or form touched their lives. But well, but I hate them. And we have a year to go. Until the election. And no matter how that election goes, I just have got this hunch that things are going to be a little testy. To put it mildly, I don't think anybody's going to be happy with the outcome. So I'm hoping for the best. <laughs> but one year from today, let's get together and let's uh, let's see what uh, let's see what things look like. If I'm broadcasting from a bunker from some undisclosed location, I guess we'll know that uh, you know it didn't turn out as good as we'd hoped. I guess we'll see. I did find a great article here from Jeffrey Tucker on the incredibly uneventful impeachment which I thought had a a great take on the impeachment efforts against President Trump and also did a really good job of summing up what I think a lot of us instinctively understand about government. And that is there, there are no good guys to speak of when it comes to how government operates. Here's how Jeff Tucker, here's how he describes it. He says, when news on the radio starts these days, These days, the top item is always about the impending impeachment of the U.S. president by the House. Every day for weeks now, he says, I immediately think, "Okay, but what's the actual news? Anything interesting going on out there? And he says, I know this is wrong. I'm as civic minded as the next guy. I'm against corruption. I'm for holding politicians accountable. Government should be good, morally upright, true blue. For this reason, I know I'm supposed to find impeachment to be engaging, ominous, and fraught with significance for the future of our constitutional republic. Of course, this is extremely important for our lives. Of course. But maybe, maybe it's all kind of boring. For some reason, the whole affair is starting to take on the character of elevator music. And the trouble is that there are some things that everyone knows Everyone knows how this ends. The Senate will stop the impeachment and the president will use this to amp up the drama for his reelection and energize his base as never before. That this whole thing will backfire to his benefit is as sure as sunrise. The Democrats these days are about as strategic as Wiley Coyote and equally persistent in trying out their newest trick that will again end with a puff of dust emerging from the ground below the cliff. Everyone knows that the House Democrats and their entire party have been in an existential meltdown of fury, shock and horror ever since election night 2016. 
The results were not supposed to be as they were, which everyone knew because nearly every living soul in the mainstream press assured us that Trump would flame out and die a disgraceful political death that night. Everyone knows that the center left has sought impeachment from that moment on. This Ukrainian business, even if the substance of every accusation is true, is the convenient excuse that they needed to do what they swore to do that night. The maudlin performances and pearl clutching in the House of Representatives are so much theater. Tucker says everyone knows, further, that the president is not happy unless he is muscling people, defeating enemies, winning the game that he sets up, exacting tribute, establishing his dominance in the room and the world stage, capturing all the headlines, and so on. That he reminded the Ukrainian president of the foreign aid the country gets prior to pressing him on information concerning his political enemies isn't even slightly surprising. We are way past shock on this front. Trump believes the entire U.S. economy is his private achievement. That he also believes that the U.S. Treasury is his for advancing his political interests follows too. Nor does anyone believe that tying aid to political ends is somehow unprecedented in American political life. We only pretend to be taken aback. Actually, we know that this is just a small peek into what really goes on in these circles. And he says, finally, here is the core of what everyone knows. Everyone knows that the real-life business of government is shady, backstabbing, underhanded, duplicitous, dogs-eating dogs, and fundamentally rotten. Both sides, all sides. Now, he says this impeachment in particular has a cast of characters out of the darkest corners of American life. We've got a salivating media hungry for readers, a gaggle of permanent bureaucrats wanting to drive out the interloping president, an opposition party consumed in fear and loathing, and vast partisan interests excited about how much money they can raise from the naive who join political tribes and cough up money to see their tribe win the day. Now, he says the impeachment angle here is particularly exciting to some because it recalls the last great moment in American political history in which many people were genuinely shocked at White House hijinks. The press was loved and respected. That a president could be impeached was genuinely alarming. When Nixon finally waved goodbye, it was a watershed moment in American history, or so people believed. Now, Jeff Tucker says, I have some faint memories of all this. My grandparents and parents huddled around the television. The testimony was riveting. What did he know and when did he know it? Where are the tapes? How deep does the cover-up extend? It was like a great movie. Now he says, to be sure, my parents were convinced that Nixon was being railroaded by partisan attacks. He was technically guilty, they would admit, but what he did was not an actual crime. It was all politics going down. But then again, he says, my parents were rebels. I took their message to my second grade class, and I was the only person in my entire grade that had doubts about the impeachment. But he says the real point is that everyone cared intensely. It was a huge deal. Remember that in these times, two-thirds of Americans professed respect for the presidency and the political system. That Watergate exposed the underside was something of a shock to everyone, even Nixon partisans. And there's a parallel with how the center left wanted Nixon to die the death and how Trump is being treated today. He says Nixon was in the House during the amazing 1948 Hiss Chambers testimony before the Un-American Activities Committee and used the occasion to launch his political career. Here was the witch hunt of the day and they found real witches. And the left never forgave him for it. 
They swore revenge and eventually they got it. In a similar way, Trump was not supposed to win the presidency in 2016. He will pay the price someday, swore the multitudinous members of the Washington clerisy. But he says the big difference between now and then is that back then, government seemed really important. It was fighting the Cold War. It was stabilizing the economy, they said. The best and brightest were drawn to Washington like moths to a flame. Today, not so much. The last time government did anything notably notably spectacular was the moonshot. What's happened since? It has raised taxes, inflated the money supply, got the country embroiled in endless stupid wars, and hectored and jailed people for smoking plants. Most political news is either trivial or depressing, and the media has been massively diversified and the mainstream discredited. So Jeff Tucker says today is a different world from that which produced Watergate. What was once an ominous moment in 1974 has become the incredibly uneventful impeachment in 2019. An impeachment completely consistent with the reputational status of state today, which is a shadow of its former self. Post-impeachment, he says, the situation in the United States that produced President Trump will still exist. Namely, the massive public dissatisfaction with the status quo. That is unimpeachable. I think he has a point worth considering here. What's really going to change? Let's say that the left succeeds and they toss Trump out on his ear. Nothing is going to change in the way that we're still being fleeced, spied upon, lied to, bullied, etc. by our government. Let's go to the phone. 801-331-8113. Hi, welcome to the show. Hello? Yeah, go ahead. You're on the air. Oh, now you're on K-Talk. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, we've got about 30 seconds here, Ray. Oh, 30 seconds. Okay. Well, it's true. Mitt Romney does seem to be a, very, uh, a more moral person than President Trump. You know, but what has President Trump done in office? I mean, I, I don't see any violation in a law. I mean, why can't he go around the world looking for crime, crimes against America? You know, um, by Americans, I I don't see a problem there. I I don't see anything President Trump has done that is impeachable. You know, now the past 40 years of Democrats, there's a lot of impeachable stuff there. But um, only 30 seconds, huh? Yeah, we're we're up against the break here. Listen, thanks. Thanks for weighing in on this. I know this is on a lot of people's minds. I'm going to make the same offer I had in the last hour. One year from today. I believe will be Election Day. And we ought to get together and see how things have shaken out since then. I'm hoping for the best, (laughs) but I have to really try to be that optimistic. Hey, I want to welcome you back to Loving Liberty. This is Brian Hyde and... I've got some great stuff to share with you for the remainder of this hour. I want to jump into an article here by Caitlin Johnstone. And it is about the incredible shrinking Overton window. Now, when you hear the Overton window, I, you know, for the longest time I'd hear people talk about this and I think, what, what exactly is that Overton window? In a nutshell, the Overton window is the spectrum of debate that's considered socially acceptable. And she says right now, that's something that is being shrunken right before our eyes. In other words, what we're allowed to discuss is artificially limited 
And she starts off with a quote from Noam Chomsky. Now, whatever you may think of Noam Chomsky, I think he nails it here. So don't uh, don't get knee jerky about, well, I don't agree with anything he says. Listen to what he says and then judge what he says based on the merits. Does that make sense or not? Chomsky says the smart way to keep people passive and obedient is to strictly limit the spectrum of acceptable opinion, but allow very lively debate within that spectrum. Even encourage the more critical and dissident views. That gives people the sense that there's free thinking going on all the while, well, all the time, the presuppositions of the system are being reinforced by the limits put on the range of the debate. If you get people arguing and discussing and debating and oh, look how involved I am, but they can't talk about things that actually matter. You've effectively got you've effectively got them boxed in. And that's not a good thing. Caitlin Johnstone says the plutocrat-owned narrative managers of the political-slash-media class work constantly to shrink that Overton window. And they do this by framing more and more debates in terms of how the oligarchic empire should be sustained and supported, steering us away from debates about whether that empire should be existed, should be permitted to exist, rather, in the first place. They get people debating whether there should be some moderate changes made or no meaningful changes at all, rather than massive sweeping changes we all know need to be made to the entire system. They get people debating whether they should elect a crook in a red hat or a crook in a blue hat, rather than whether or not they should be forced to elect crooks. They get people debating violations of government secrecy laws, not whether the government has any business keeping those secrets from its citizenry in the first place. They get people debating how Internet censorship should take place and whom should be censored rather than on whether any Internet censorship should occur. They get people debating how and to what extent government surveillance should occur, not whether the government has any business spying on its citizens. They get people debating how subservient and compliant someone needs to be in order to not get shot by a police officer rather than asking whether a police officer should be shooting people for those reasons at all. They get people debating whether or not a group of protesters are sufficiently polite, rather than debating the thing that those protesters are demonstrating against. They get people debating about whether this thing or that thing is a conspiracy theory, rather than discussing the known fact that powerful people conspire. To which I might add, Jeffrey Epstein did not kill himself. They get people debating whether Tulsi Gabbard is a dangerous lunatic, a Russian asset, a Republican asset gearing up for a third party run or just a harmless Democratic Party crackpot. Rather than discussing the fact that her foreign policy would have been considered perfectly normal prior to 9-11. They get people debating whether Bernie Sanders is electable or too radical rather than discussing what it says about the status quo that his extremely modest proposals, which every other major country already implements, are treated as something outlandish in the United States. By the way, if you didn't know, Caitlin Johnstone is out of Australia, so she, she has some fairly hardcore left-wing views, that being one of them. They get people debating whether Jeremy Corbyn has done enough to address the labor anti-Semitism crisis, rather than whether that crisis ever existed at all outside the imaginations of establishment smear merchants. They get people debating whether Joe Biden or Elizabeth Warren would win against Trump rather than whether either of these establishment lackeys is a worthy nominee. 
They get people debating whether politicians should have corporate sponsors rather than, what corpora- rather than whether corporations should be allowed to interfere in the electoral process at all. They get people debating if the U.S. should be pursuing regime change in Iran or Syria rather than whether the U.S. has any business overthrowing the governments of sovereign nations to begin with. They get people debating how many U.S. troops should be in Syria rather than whether that illegal invasion and occupation was ever legitimate in the first place. They get people debating whether to kill people slowly by sanctions or kill them quickly with bombs rather than whether they should be killed at all. They get people debating whether or not some other country's leader is an evil dictator rather than whether it's any of your business. They get people debating to the extent to which Russia and Trump were involved in the Democratic Party's 2016 email leaks rather than the contents of those leaks. They get people debating what the response should be to Russian interference in the election rather than whether that interference took place at all and whether it would really matter if it did. They get people debating how much government support the poor should be allowed to have rather than whether the rich should be allowed to keep what they've stolen from the poor. They get people debating what kind of taxes billionaires should have to pay rather than whether it makes sense for billionaires to exist at all. They get people impotently debating bad things other countries do rather than the bad things their own country does, which they can actually do something about. They get people debating what should be done to prevent the rise of China rather than whether a multipolar world might be beneficial. They get people debating whether Western Cold War escalations against the Russian Federation are sufficient rather than whether they want the horrors of the Cold War to be resurrected in the first place. They get people debating what extent cannabis should be decriminalized rather than whether the government should be allowed to lock anyone up for deciding to put any substance whatsoever in their own body. They get people debating whether or not U.S. troops should be withdrawn from Afghanistan rather than whether or not there should be any U.S. troops outside of the U.S. They get people debating whether or not Julian Assange is a real journalist rather than whether or not they should set legal precedents which necessarily criminalize acts of journalism. They get people debating the subtle details of bail protocol, political asylum, embassy cat hygiene and leaking rather than whether it should ever be illegal to imprison a publisher for exposing government war crimes. Caitlin Johnstone says they get people debating what the punishment should be for whistleblowers, not what the punishment should be for those they blow the whistle on. They get people debating whether Fox or MSNBC is the real fake news, rather than whether the entirety of mainstream media is oligarchic propaganda. They get people debating about how things, the things everyone is freaking out over Trump doing, were previously done by Obama, rather than discussing why all U.S. presidents do the same evil things, regardless of their parties or campaign platforms. They get people debating what should be done with money, not whether the concept of money itself is in need of a complete overhaul. They get people debating whether the status quo should be reinforced or revised rather than whether it should be flushed down the toilet where it belongs. They get people angrily debating things they can't change rather than constructively working on things that they can. And finally, she says, they get people shoving against each other in opposite directions while they swiftly build a cage around us all.
Now, look, there are some things in there that I don't agree with her on. I don't think that uh, we need to outlaw billionaires, and I don't think that billionaires stole money from poor people. But I'd say 95% of what she says here rings very, very true, especially this last part about uh, how the the powers that be, the oligarchic uh, propaganda organs, keep us debating on things we can't change rather than constructively working on the things that we can. And so that's my message to you is question these kind of things. Look, the truth is we are far better problem solvers than any politician would ever want us to believe. Because if we understood how much potential we have to solve problems voluntarily, whether it's at an individual, a family, a community level, we'd very quickly realize we don't need what the politicians are trying to sell us. I think they know that. Trusted voices of truth and insight. This is the Loving Liberty Radio Network. Hey, thanks once again for joining us here on the Loving Liberty Radio Network. I am Brian Hyde, and I want to mention that Ammo.com is one of our network sponsors. If you enjoy the shooting sports or if you like to train, you know, and, and that's an essential part of being a gun owner is to, to get as much training as you can. Ammunition is an essential thing. You got to have some. And it's it's wonderful that we live in a time where you can shop and have it delivered right to your doorstep. Get exactly what you need, whether it's rifle ammo, handgun ammo, uh, shotgun, rimfire ammo. It's all right there. And, of course, uh, ammo.com has the selection they have the pricing if you want to buy it in bulk can save you some pretty serious money check them out and please remember us when you get to actual checkout when you make a purchase they'll ask you would you like to donate a portion of your purchase to uh, one of these freedom supporting organizations well guess what loving liberty is one of those organizations and we would love it if you would think of us ammo.com all right let's talk free speech I love to see a new column come up from Barry Brownstein. He is uh, he's one of those those little uh, lighthouses of reason and insight that uh, otherwise uh, keeps me out of danger on a very large sea of irrationality and partisan blather. Barry's always got something of substance to offer. And boy, he's got a great column today on how without free speech, all speech becomes government speech. Now, you may say, oh, it's pretty ironic you're talking about this kind of stuff, Brian, when here you are, you know, yapping away with all the free speech you could possibly want. And point taken, but look at what's happening in other places. Uh, you know, the UK, for instance, holy cow, the things that can land people in jail just over speech. And it's it's happening to a lesser extent here, but it's starting with just the the, the corporate peer pressure or the official peer pressure. You know, you say something wrong, you misgender somebody in school. Whew, there's a price to be paid. So here's what uh, here's what Barry shares. He he has a video linked in the uh, in the article and says, when I first viewed this video, I wondered if it was a hoax. I thought it must be a group of actors trying to make a point about how far restrictions on speech have gone. But he says, unfortunately, the video captures reality in Scotland 
in 2019. It's a video that picks up an exchange between a Scottish high school teacher and a student. The class was asked to sign up for a website, and according to the student, the teacher commented on how old-fashioned the website was for listing only two sexes. The student, named Murray, remarked, but sir, there's only two genders. And the teacher insisted they continue the discussion outside the classroom. Well, Murray recorded the encounter on his phone, and here are some of the lowlights of the recorded dialogue. Murray asks, why did you kick me out of class? It's not very inclusive of you. The teacher responded, I'm sorry, but what you were saying is not very inclusive. And this is an inclusive school. Murray, referring to the teacher's viewpoint that there are more than two genders, says, that's your opinion. The teacher says, that is my opinion. And that is an opinion which is acceptable in this school. The teacher then says, will you please keep that opinion, referring to Murray's view that there are two genders, to your own house, not in this room. And Murray asks, so you got to put your opinion out in class, but my opinion has to stay inside my house. The teacher says, I'm not putting my opinion out. I am stating what is national school authority policy. And the teacher then says, I know what you think, and I know what the authority thinks. Holy cow. Now, Barry Brownstein says, following the UK national school authority policy on the number of genders, children are taught there are 100 gender identities. Now, Murray wasn't sent to a re-education camp, but the school suspended him for several weeks. As for the teacher, well, he's trying to be a proper government functionary. Perhaps he's dreaming of retirement or at least the day when students like Murray will no longer dare to challenge him. And here's the kicker. If you're sure this sort of incident couldn't happen in America, think again. Support for free speech is dropping in this country. We talked about this last week. And Barry Brownstein writes a new survey conducted in the United States by the Campaign for Free Speech found 51% of Americans agreed with this statement. Quote, the First Amendment goes too far in allowing hate speech in modern America and should be updated to reflect the cultural norms of today. End quote. Holy cow. <laughs> 48% thought, and a majority of millennials agreed, hate speech should be outlawed. An astonishing 54% of millennials thought jail time should be the consequence penalty for hate speech. Now, hate speech was not defined in the survey. 57% of Americans are ready to take, to have government rather, take action against newspapers and TV stations that publish content that is biased, inflammatory, or false. Now, these findings are not out of line with earlier surveys, such as a Cato Institute 2017 Free Speech and Tolerance Survey, which found 40% of Americans think the government should prevent hate speech. Recently, Richard Stengel, a former editor of Time, called for limits on the First Amendment. Stengel wrote, the intellectual underpinning of the First Amendment was engineered for a simpler era. And without defining hate, he called for laws prohibiting speech that incites hate. So for Stengel, it's a bad thing, not a strength of America, that our First Amendment standard is an outlier. And if you thought anti-free speech sentiment is limited to college campuses, Barry Brownstein says you would be wrong. We'll come back to his article in just a moment. Let's go to the phone, 801-331-8113. Hi, welcome to Loving Liberty. Hey, good afternoon, Brian. How are you? I am well. What's, what's on your mind, Sam? Well, on this particular subject, one of the one of the things we should have stood up against a long time ago was this whole idea of the term hate speech being introduced into uh, 
into the um, arena of ideas in the first place in the sense that uh, define hate speech. You know, I mean, there therein lies the problem. What we're all going to wind up doing is constantly walking on eggshells because we don't know when somebody's going to misconstrue something that we say is hate speech. You know, and of course, we've already seen how that goes. You know, all it takes is for somebody not to agree with a person in question or something, and suddenly you hate them. It's, you know, it goes it's, back to what the Bible says, you know. It's um, it's the, the unspecified predicate, I think is how Joseph Sobran used to describe it. You know, we all know that hate is bad, but if I accuse you of hate, you know, that's Sam. He's a hater. I haven't told anybody what you have done to deserve that label, but they know that I've just accused you of something really heinous, and now they just draw their own emotional associations to try to fill in the gaps of, wow, that Sam must be a really bad character. Oh, did you hear? He hates. Yeah, see, the problem you got here, this is people attempting to judge the hearts of other people when in reality there's only one who can do that. Here, here. Um, so that's that's one issue right off the bat. That this is what happens when you pull God out of the uh, out out of the society. Then this is what you get because then you start winding up with people playing God in so many ways, including government doing the same thing. And this is just another way. I mean, you know, you know, Bible talks about there being a time when people will hear only what their itching ears want to hear, not what is reality. And it's. It's happened throughout history. I mean, we've seen it in communist countries, you know, that have gone by the wayside. And it's the same old, same old thing every time we turn around. Uh, If I were, I'll tell you this much, Brian, if I were a veteran of all these wars we've been engaged with, I would be absolutely insulted over the way this country went. Because weren't we not told back in the um, 40s, 50s, 60s, and 70s as we had all these wars going on, Fighting communism, right? We're trying to stamp out communism around the world. Well, we see how well that worked, didn't we? Yeah. <laughs> and I would be absolutely livid as a veteran if I were a veteran of some of these wars. I would be. That, I mean, you talk about uh, something to be really irritated about. It would be that because you now here you go into the arena. You know the the uh, the theater of war. And you um, claim you're fighting for freedom and all this stuff, only to find out that you really weren't fighting for freedom after all. I've talked to more than a few soldiers who've come to that realization, and and it's and it's crushing because they went in good faith, you know. They, uh, but but I'll tell you, nobody stands up more firmly for freedom than individuals who realize, you know, what my government would lie to me <laughs> or it would it would take advantage of me. And they're some of the staunchest defenders that I know today. Yeah, yeah. So that's all I got, Brian. Okay, thanks so much for the call. I want to finish up this article again from Barry Brownstein. This is on the future. I'm sorry. I, I, I love the Future of Freedom Foundation. This is actually on the Foundation for Economic Education. Anyway, I will post this in the show notes. Um, He talks about how government doesn't give us the right to free speech, and that is a distinction that we should all have straight in our heads. The Constitution doesn't give us any rights. Government doesn't give us any rights. And if you really want to get down to brass tacks, government exists for the purpose of securing and protecting, guaranteeing those rights. So when a bureaucrat says, well, you know, uh, none of these rights are absolute and we need to do something to, you know, to to make sure that uh, this is regulated within reason. That's a very unreasonable thing to be asking. 
How many Americans know that, though? Hopefully a few more, or at least those who are listening to this program. Here's what we're going to do. We'll take a very quick break. We'll come back in just a few moments. We'll finish up with Barry Brownstein's commentary. I will have it in the show notes. This is Loving Liberty. We'll be back after these messages. Hey, welcome back to Loving Liberty. I'm sharing with you an article by Barry Brownstein from the future. Dang it, I did it again. The free... The Foundation for Economic Education. My apologies. I I, I have to admit, this is just a quick aside. The reason I have the Future of Freedom Foundation on my mind is because uh, Jacob Hornberger, who is the founder of FFF.org, announced over the weekend he will be running for president on the Libertarian Party ticket. And I'm a little bit excited just because that's... That's a pretty principled guy. I can't I can't tell you I can't endorse a candidate, but I'll tell you that uh, of all the posturing and all the preening and trying to out uh, maneuver each to the left or or uh, presumably to the right. You know, if it were the Republicans in, in that position, it'll be nice to have a principled voice out there. I don't think he has a chance of getting elected, but at the very least. Uh, yeah, I think uh, Mr. Hornberger can can elevate the discussion to some of the principles at stake. So we get out of that loop that uh, Caitlin Johnstone was uh, describing earlier in the show here, where we, we argue about things that, uh, that don't even really matter. Well, how much should we expand this rather than should that program exist in the first place? Anyway, back to Barry Brownstein's article, government doesn't give us the right to free speech. Now he points out there may be flaws in the survey designed by the campaign for free speech, but he says the findings warn of waning support for our constitutional rights. And he says there's fundamental confusion on the source of our right to free speech. The right to free speech codified in the First Amendment is not a grant of the right to f- of free speech. It is a prohibition against government interfering in an inherent right of Americans. Congress shall make no law respecting an establishment of religion or prohibiting the free exercise thereof or abridging the freedom of speech or of the press. Now, when the First Amendments to the Constitution, the Bill of Rights, were being debated, Madison and other founders initially feared enumerating rights would later be interpreted, interpreted rather, to mean only rights named in the Constitution would be protected. That's why Madison addressed those fears with the Ninth Amendment to the Constitution. Quote, the enumeration in the Constitution of certain rights shall not be construed to deny or disparage others retained by the people. End quote. Now, Brownstein points out that Madison was adamant on the absolute nature of the First Amendment, even when the results displease some or many. He said, our First Amendment freedoms give us the right to think what we like and say what we please. And if we the people are to govern ourselves, we must have these rights, even if they are misused by a minority. End quote. So Barry Brownstein says, just as you can't be half pregnant, there is no such thing as government regulated free speech. If government is the arbiter of what's acceptable speech, you are on the road to a dystopian nightmare. The founders were clear, fallible individuals, limited in knowledge, were not to be trusted with the power to infringe on our rights. Nor, Madison believed, would a Democratic vote offer any protection for free speech. In Federalist Paper Number 10, Madison explains that democracy offers no protection against the passion of a faction opposed to liberty. Quote, when a majority is included in a faction, the form of popular government enables it to sacrifice to its ruling passion both the public good and the rights of other citizens, end quote. Wow. 
Next, he references North Korea, where all speech must glorify the government. And he notes that Masaji Ishikawa was born in 1947 in Japan to a Korean father and a Japanese mother. His father was a violent alcoholic. In 1960, Ishikawa's family, mired in poverty, moved to North Korea as part of a mass repatriation movement that included almost 100,000 Koreans lured by the promises of a paradise on earth, a land of milk and honey. In his book, A River in Darkness, One Man's Escape from North Korea, Ishikawa learned that as a fish doesn't understand water, he didn't understand the freedoms he had in Japan. He said, when I lived in Japan, I never really pondered my life. I became obsessed with all the things I had taken for granted before and all the hardships that marked my life now. But that didn't last long. I soon learned that it was not that thought was not free in North Korea. A free thought could get you killed if it slipped out. If you were lucky, you might get sent to some remote mountainous region to do hard labor. Or you might get sent to a concentration camp for political prisoners because you were deemed to be a liberal or a capitalist with bad habits. And bad habits needed to be stamped out by means of a jackboot to the genitals. Or then again, you might simply be executed. Barry Brownstein notes that Ishikawa's family was a potential source of ideas dangerous to the North Korean police state. Ishikawa said we were constantly monitored by the goons of the state security of North Korea and the secret police. He says, I guess we posed a double threat. We'd brought some dangerous items with us from Japan when we moved. Things like bicycles and electrical appliances and half-decent clothes. What if the local villagers came to realize that their standard of living was pitiful? Or still, what would happen if they got wind of the concept of free thought from us? They might question the wisdom of Kim Il-sung. And that was verboten. Brownstein says education in North Korea consists mostly of studying the collected works of the despots Kim Il-sung and Kim Jong-il's revolutionary thought. Their doctrine of, how would you say this, Juchi? Juchi is the uh, backbone of North Korean society. In The Impossible State, North Korea, Past and Future, Victor Cha explains the indoctrination. Juch was seared into the minds of every North Korean every day through repetitive indoctrination sessions. There was almost a biological and anatomical rationalization for loyalty that went along with the spiritual. Juch's writings taught that the great leader, Kim Il-sung, was the brain, the party was the nerves, and the people were the arms, muscle, and bone of the state. Two messages of, of obedience emerged. Number one, without the brain... The rest does not function, and therefore there must be complete loyalty. And number two, independent thinking was not needed since this was handled by the brain. The only critical thinking that was allowed was self-criticism based on guilt for not serving the leader well. End quote. So in North Korea, speaking your mind is incomprehensible. Now, Barry Brownstein says, reading my essay, you might think I'm overwrought. Surely those who want to restrict hate speech don't want complete loyalty to a future presidency of, let's say, Elizabeth Warren. They don't want Americans to memorize her speeches or study her ponderings in school. But he says, if you believe my worries are unfounded, read again the exchange with the Scottish teacher and the student, Murray. The teacher thinks he is innocent in stifling dissent. He's merely spreading national school authority policy. The teacher knows what Murray thinks, and he knows what the authority thinks. The view of the authorities trumps the students' opinions. In a future democratic socialist administration, mired in economic collapse, 
Barry Brownstein asks, is it a stretch to predict that the protection of free speech will continue to wane, making criticism of government policies verboten? If disagreement over the number of genders can't be tolerated, surely disagreements on a debt jubilee or a wealth tax wouldn't be tolerated either. He's got a point. Ishikawa didn't understand the freedoms he had in Japan until he lost freedom in North Korea. Like Ishikawa in Japan, today's Americans don't know. We are swimming in the warm waters of liberty with the freedom to speak our mind. But as Barry Brownstein says, in degree, America is far removed from the world of North Korea. But when the government is given the power to determine what is acceptable speech, we are operating out of the same totalitarian mindset that leads to dystopian hell. If totalitarian comes to America, we will have no one to blame. And by the way, it's coming. Let me give you an example. I just saw this uh, this story the other day. It's because uh, Halloween, apparently uh, for Halloween in Davis County, Utah, a principal and a teacher have been placed on leave after a boy dressed as Hitler in the school parade. Now, look, truth be told, this kid did not dress as Hitler. What he dressed as was he dressed as a Disney character. Jojo Rabbit. But here's the really here's the really interesting thing. The district is taking the matter very seriously. It is investigating every aspect of the situation. They do not tolerate speech images or conduct that portray or promote hate in any form. And there are administrators there who believe that, you know what, the best thing they could do would be to remove every reference, every picture of Adolf Hitler from textbooks, from history books. I mean, they're no better than book burners themselves. If that's the if that's the case, you don't have to be glorifying a dictator in order to to acknowledge that yeah, he was a real guy. These were real policies that he enacted. I don't know. I mean, look, I <laughs> I, I know people who wouldn't dress up as, as Charlie Chaplin for Halloween just because, you know, if my hat fell off, I'd probably look a lot like Hitler. OK, I can understand that. You want to be careful. But we are so keyed into overreacting anytime something that might be inappropriate comes up. I can see that we're heading for a very dystopian future. And I think Barry Brownstein outlines perfectly how it's happening. Trusted voices of truth and insight. This is the Loving Liberty Radio Network. 